Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. I'm Josh Schneiderweiler, and for this episode, I've been speaking to Luke Bourne. Luke is a former professor of statistics at Harvard University and is one of the pioneers of data science in sport. In 2016-17, he was head of analytics at AS Roma before joining the Sacramento Kings in the NBA. He is now co-founder and chief scientist of Zealous Analytics, which hopes to become the world's best sports intelligence platform. Luke started by telling me how he started his career in elite sport. I come from a pretty unusual background in in sports. Uh, Most of the people that I've worked with over the years, both in basketball and in football, have ultimately wanted to work in sports their entire life. And I came up through it in in a very different way. I started off as an academic, again, sort of studying uh, space-time systems and ended up uh, sort of stumbling into NBA player tracking data, which gives you the locations on the court of all 10 players in the ball you know, 30 times per second. And for me, that was just an incredibly interesting scientific uh, challenge and probably the richest space-time data set that I had ever seen. And so I really got into sports, not because I grew up with a passion and always wanted to work in sports. I got into sports because it was, without a doubt in my mind, the, the hardest scientific problem that I'd yet encountered. So did you watch sports when you were younger, like whether that be football or basketball or, or anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm Canadian. So it goes without saying that I grew up playing and watching hockey as my primary sport. So in fact, to this day, I'm still a season ticket holder uh, of the Vancouver Canucks. So you said that you just were kind of drawn to sports because it was the most difficult challenge. You know, what, what about sports makes it the most difficult challenge when it comes to space-time systems? Yeah, it's a combination of most difficult challenge and availability of data. So first off, if you think about what's going on on a football pitch, you have 22 actors interacting, you know, from a purely scientific perspective, you have 22 players interacting, you know, 11 v 11, trying to sort of accomplish different groups trying to accomplish a different goal. You have individual action, you have interaction between the units that are sort of collaborative. You have adversary actions because of the, you know, the opposition. You have the interaction of the of the officials or the referees. You have the interplay with the ball, you know, and you and you you get good data on this where you're measuring it multiple times per second. You get the locations of the players. You get the 3D location of the ball. So it's just incredibly rich uh, data. And in fact, you know, over the last five or ten years, that data has spawned literally hundreds of papers and sort of pushed forward our understanding of these types of sort of tracking data sets. And ultimately, it's led to actually advances in other domains, including. Um, um, like wildlife tracking, which we talked about earlier, it's led to, uh, it's actually been taken in, in, in areas of defense and military. So a lot of the sort of things that uh, the work that we did in sports five, 10 years ago has actually like spawned all these other uh, areas of, of study. Wait, wait, I have to ask now, you said that it spawned like study in wildlife. Can you be a little bit more specific? What, can you, what, what example yeah, so, are so you thinking the, of? Probably the early, some of the earliest tracking data that we had was was attaching trackers to um, wildlife, right? Like there's, there's studies that go on where they, where they were, will attach, um, sensors to seals, for example, and then track like pods of seals, um, and and how they move and interact and so on. Um, so those are some of the earlier ones, but then this, the complexity of this, the player tracking data, both in basketball, as well as in, in, in football is so much richer that we were able to do much more complex things with that data. And a lot of those techniques and ideas that were developed in sports have actually been ported back over to some of the wildlife tracking studies and sort of 
using some of those statistical ideas to, to again, you go back to the, to the sort of original domain. That's fascinating to consider kind of that cycle of, of how it's all worked out. Um, in, in a perfect world, that's how science works, right? It's like different domains push push knowledge in a new direction and, uh, um, and it ends up sort of circling back and, and, and everyone's better as a result. So I want to go to the year 2016. You're a visiting scholar at Harvard. You know, how do you suddenly pop onto the radar of AS Roma, you know, one of the biggest clubs in Italian football? Yeah, so it's probably useful to go even farther back. So 2012, I started as a as a professor at Harvard, and one of my first meetings there was a, just a total fluke encounter where I um, happened to meet a great guy, Kirk Goldsberry, and him and I sort of worked together on this tracking data for for several years. And the, you know, living in Boston, ended up publishing a whole bunch of papers using that data, and at the time. The owners of Roma, um, Jim Pilata, were um, you know were based in Boston as well. And so over the course of three or four years, I would present at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. He had uh, some of his staff there that that sort of saw some of those presentations. Led to a bunch of um, conversations over the years, and then uh, at some point, it, it was yeah, as you say, about 2016, um, the sort of stars aligned and. I happened to be sort of thinking about a new opportunity and they were really interested in investing heavily in analytics. And uh, so it came together just sort of at the, the right fruitful timing. So what did they want you to do when you came over? Yeah, so my role was was really thinking about um, making objective decisions up and down the organization. So that's starting at, at recruitment, but working all the way through sports science and tactics and so on. Of course, I tend to believe that across sports, the number one lever that teams have to create wins is in recruitment, ultimately putting the best players possible on the pitch. And so that's where the bulk of my work was, you know, valuing um, players, essentially answering the very simple question, is this player good or bad? This was during the time of Salah and Allison. You know, what did you see or how did you go about scouting those guys? Yeah, so, you know, I certainly wouldn't take um, nearly that much credit. There's a there's a big group of people at Roma scouts and sporting directors and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I was, I was really fortunate the time we were there was you know, building out the team that um, that ultimately went to uh, beat Barcelona in the sort of late stages of the Champions League. You know, that's uh, Alisson, Salah, Rudiger, um, etc. So, yeah, it was a really exciting time. And, uh, um, you know, what did we see in those players? You know, again, my, my the analytical part is relatively small, but these, these are just players that have historically been undervalued in their other teams. And, and we saw that their, you know, their value is, is higher than than the market suggested they were. And so when you started working for Roma as someone who was kind of new to the sports industry, as you said, kind of an outsider, since you didn't, uh, you know, grow up in it, you know, how did it compare to your expectations? Yeah, so leading up to that, I would certainly had lots of work experience outside of sports, and I had actually worked in basketball. So sports wasn't entirely uh, new to me. But I think the thing that that caught me off guard the most um, was how how interested teams were in data, but then how little the data actually influenced decision-making. Um, and this is something that's been a pattern of my entire career is just observing that um, th- this, where, where you'll have an ownership group or maybe a board of directors who says, yeah, we need to invest in data. They might bring in an analyst, pay for some data. Um, and then in the end, the, the impact of that role is, is, is almost nil. And so that's probably the thing that surprised me the most is, 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 um, is how an organization could say, "Hey, we 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 want to 
we think this is really important, but then not put in place the processes or the leadership to actually execute on on that data. Can you uh, kind of explain why it didn't, you know, influence more decisions when you were at Roma? Like why kind of it seems like a lot of your work was it maybe used or uh, utilized as much as it could have been? Yeah, maybe maybe a, the better way to frame this is I think of another industry. So I actually used to work for Electronic Arts on the FIFA franchise. And one of the, 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 one of the core areas where I worked is Ultimate Team. So I don't know if you've ever played FIFA Ultimate Team, but it's this kind of version of the game where you um, where you sort of build up your own team. You can you can buy these sort of packs of, of players and you know you trade and, and play and, and so on. And so there, one, one of my roles was to understand um, you know, various aspects of, of player behavior. And if I look up, if I sort of think of where I was at EA at the time, you know, this is over 10 years, well over 10 years ago. Um, if I look up the, the chain of command of, in terms of where I was versus people that are making decisions, first off, there wasn't that many layers above me. And second off, all the people who were above me were sort of technical people, very data-driven, very um, used to thinking about things from an objective um, perspective. Like, hey, any decision we make, we need to have data on it. We need to be sure that this is going to have positive ROI, et cetera, right? You look at it in most sports teams in, in, in Converse, they might hire an analyst or, or sort of a you know, technical coach who's sort of lower level. If you look above, it's typically people who um, grew up playing the sport, right? So it's 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 nothing malicious or nothing um, that's done with with ill intent. For the most part, it's just these are people with very different backgrounds. They they are not trained or not familiar with how to how to best um, collate and sort of leverage different sources of information to to make coherent decisions. So it's it's just I think it's fundamentally just a difference of of background and um, uh, in in terms of the the people that are typically leading clubs now versus you know what I experienced for example in tech. So what was the structure like when you were at Roma? Um, you know, when you had, when you did work and, um, you know, who did you give it to or who did you report to? Um, what was that like? Yeah. So at, at Roma, I worked essentially really closely with the ownership group. So um, uh, uh, Jim Plata's right-hand man is Alex Zeka, great guy, did um, a, a lot of sort of hand work with him uh, around recruitment, identifying players, sort of working together on thinking about um player valuation and, and um, transfer market and so on. And then at the time, you know, working with our um, sporting director, uh, you know, there's a couple of different ones over the time I was there, but essentially that would be the interfaces from me to Alex to, to, to the sporting director. So I guess it, based on what you're saying, it, it sounds like, you know, the sporting director, you know, if he didn't take action using your insights, then it kind of would just stop there. Is that what I'm uh, getting? Yeah, yeah, that's certainly, you know, maybe the, maybe the best way to think about it is, is the state of the art in, in football, at least as I experienced it in various clubs, you know, even excluding Roma, the, the, the state of the art in recruitment is you, you get a call from an agent saying, my, my player's available. You pull them up on Scout, you watch them for, for 20, 30 minutes, and then, and then you make a decision. Like that's literally, I've seen that over and over from, from clubs and it still happens to this day. Right. So in contrast to that, you, you take that as the norm for player valuation. Then all of a sudden you have these like, you know, uh, like PowerPoint decks laying out all the players' strengths and weaknesses with data and percentiles. And it's like such a different world. I think it's um, it, it's only now where, where, where organizations are building up the capacity to be able to blend those two sources of information to be able to say, hey, we can actually use this 
this this data and all these insights alongside you know scouts uh, um, information on you know their their eye test on the player. Um, but I think for the for the most part, most organizations aren't there aren't in a position to be able to to handle that. Interesting. You know, TGG recently spoke to Victor Manas, uh, who is an assistant at Villarreal uh, with Unai Emery. And, you know, when he was at Arsenal with Emery, he said that, you know, data can be a bit overwhelming, um, you know, especially when you have to play every three days. Now, obviously, this is not in the scouting department in terms of, you know, recruitment, at least. But, you know, how do you ensure that kind of coaches or analysts uh, or even players aren't like kind of overwhelmed by data, um, even when they do get it and are ready to receive it. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and probably the biggest mistake that most analysts make when they go into a club is they they overwhelm everyone around them with way too much information. In fact, like at Toulouse now, I tend to um, I, I push our guys really hard to say like, look, our post game report. Like, I would be totally happy if it was a, a single page, a blank page with a single number in the middle of it. And, and he oh, you know, wow. just drastically oversimplified because to, to the most part, they want to do more and more and more. And it's just overwhelming. Like it, it's a good, it's a good reference point to think about my time at the, the Sacramento Kings. I spent a little over three years there and, you know, I have a PhD in stats and machine learning. I, I, my whole background is in building really complex models and understanding these really complex processes. And if I think about what I did in my three years at the Kings, ultimately it was convincing people to take more three-point shots. So fundamentally, when you boil it down, I was trying to convince people that the number three is bigger than the number two. Like that was, I spent three years, you know, convincing people that three is bigger than two. And, and that's that's it, right? So you don't need complex math for any of that kind of stuff. The, the Oftentimes the biggest sources of impact you can have within an organization are really, really simple things. So kind of simplify the message is is what you're getting at. Um, yeah, I, I push that really hard. I always think, you know, what are the levers that an organization can pull to get better? And usually there's not that many, or if there is a lot, you got to sort of narrow it down to say, hey, what are the one or two or three things we want to focus on? And then you should be able to represent that that lever or that, that sort of point of influence in the organization with, with one or two numbers. So there's really no reason to go beyond that. Let's, I want to go back to your time with the Kings, because you mentioned your time there. It was really to keep it simple. How, how did you end up with the Kings? I think you spent one year at Roma. Uh, how, how did you make that big change um, to working in the NBA? Yeah, so at the time I was commuting back and forth from Vancouver to Rome, um, sort of like once a month or every six weeks or so, and it just became started to become um, pretty significant drag. With we had we had just had our second kid, it was a lot uh, a lot of my wife for me to be gone all the time. So looking for something with a little bit more stability and, and uh, less travel, and, and the Kings opportunity came up, and uh, you know the, the Roma was also at the time sort of a mid transition to Monchi at about that time. So it was a good time for me to say, okay, there's going to be a whole bunch of change there. It's a good time to sort of uh, try something new. You know, from an organizational and cultural point of view, you know, how different was it working in the NBA compared to working in football, you know, especially when it comes to using data? Yeah, I think basketball is certainly farther along in the in the level of understanding of the game, as well as the level of adoption of data-driven methods for, for decision-making. But it's certainly not to the point of, let's say, baseball, where baseball teams, there's, there's a good percentage of baseball teams that are um, driving decisions almost entirely based on data. You know, in, uh, in, in basketball, for the most part, GMs continue to be former players, agents, um, and, and analytics just, and data just be, is still a relatively small part of the, the overall um, 
decision on most players. So, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities, in, in fact, you know, and when I was at the Kings, the sort of senior leadership was two former star players from the Kings, right? And they were great guys. This is Vladi Divac and, um, and Pedro Stojakovic. Great guys and sort of knew the game inside and out, but, you know, just didn't have experience um, integrating data into decision-making. So that was a lot of my role is, is, um, is, is helping think through how do we best use data to, to, to sort of augment and complement decision-making within the organization. And ultimately, that's the same thing I think that most people that work with football teams are doing to this day. Did you have any special tactics for trying to integrate that data? Yeah, I think back to what we talked about earlier, just keeping it really, really simple. I, I think oftentimes it's really overwhelming. Um, and, and so one of the key things we would do is just try and, try and keep the message as simple as we possibly can. And um, in addition to keeping it really simple, just putting it in, in language that, that, that people can understand. So trying to frame our valuations in, in terms of basketball contributions that people can understand because my experience is that that scouts and people with their eye are actually you know decently good at saying this player's good or this player's bad but when there's when there's a lot of gray area i think human uh, valuation is not necessarily good at, at small levels of differentiation and when you're talking to professional sports small levels of differentiation a player that adds two wins versus a player that adds four wins that's the difference between a player you're going to pay 10 million a year versus a player you're going to pay 20 million a year that's a huge range so you know, I think human eyes are not good at differentiating those small of, of a level of, of change and paying a player 20 million who should only be making 10. If you do that a couple of times as an organization, you're, you're going to be in really big trouble. And, and statistical methods are really good at those sort of fine scale uh, estimation. It's, they're really good at saying, hey, this player is worth 10 million, maybe plus or minus 2 million. So we think this player is worth between 8 million a year and, and 12 million a year, um, but definitely not worth 20 million a year. So that's where we sort of were able to add a lot of value is to say, uh, okay, let's understand this player's skill and in really simple terms, make sure that we're aligned with, with scouts and provide context for them. But then framing the overall contribution with a lot more precision than I think us as humans are comfortable or capable of doing. Yeah, I think in baseball, they call it like war wins above replacement. It's like the, you know, kind of the gold standard. And it's quite simple, right? Wins over replacement. Right. Um, you know, is, is there any version of that in, in football or yeah, uh, in there, basketball? There definitely is. It, it, the, you know, the unit of measure in each sport in terms of thinking about a player's contribution is a little bit different. So in baseball, the, the obvious thing is runs, right? It's, it's sort of net runs, both in terms of, you know, when you're at bat, how many runs do you score versus how many do you allow when you're out in the field let's say or a pitcher in in basketball it's um it's points or and in 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 football it's you know ultimately these things are all wins but when you build down to football it's really goal differential right it's uh understanding this player's impact on goal differential but i have a very strong suspicion that if you asked even a very trained very experienced scout what um takes you know some of the most watched players in the world take like even Messi or you know Mo Salah and you said what is this player's impact over replacement on goal differential? You'd probably get a blank stare, right? And, and where statistical methods are great is to be able to add the kind of precision around that kind of estimation that you need to be able to decide whether you're going to sign this player for 10 million or 20 million or 100 million. You know, so what what can football learn from basketball? I, I think you're one of the only people I can think of that's worked in both uh, sports at you know at a really high level. Yeah, that's a good good question. So I think. Let me just start from a tactical perspective. I, th I think that that football teams can learn a lot from both basketball and American football and the design of set pieces. 
the way that basketball players think about screens, which is essentially, you know, getting in the way of your, your opposition and um, using your body sort of tactically in a, in a quote unquote legal way. But um, you know, in, in, in football, this happens of course all the time, but uh, um, it's not necessarily the set pieces aren't designed in a, in a really um, deliberate way. And I think that's, that's one of the things that immediately comes to mind is, Hey, looking at American football, you know, Ted Lasso style and saying, Hey, can we, uh, can we learn something from how these guys are, are running routes to create, ultimately it's about creating space and creating opportunity, right? Set pieces. If you think about what that is, that's the delivery aside. If you think about a corner, you're ultimately, it's about creating moments of space and opportunity for a guy to get his head on the ball, say, right. And so this is ultimately the identical thing that American football coaches have been doing for the last you know, hundred years, which is design coordinated actions that open up space for receivers to receive the ball. So it's very much, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ideas there that can be taken from a tactical perspective. And, um, but, the, but then also from a management perspective, um, really just professionalizing the, the management of these sports teams. Baseball is a great example. I always look to because they're so far ahead of like all the GMs. If you look at the GM hirings in, in MLB over the last 10 years, they're all former, uh, you know, McKinsey consultants and and Harvard MBAs. It's just such a different world now than than it was. It used to be, you know, you were a player and then you were a scout and then you were a GM. You know, GM being, of course, the equivalent of sporting director. Now it's, you know, you 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 go, you get a, an MBA from Harvard, you work for a, a strategy consulting firm, then you sort of advise a club, and then they hire you as the GM. So it's such a such a drastically different path, and in the end, you end up with front offices that much more closely resemble um, businesses. So you mentioned, um, you know, creating space with set pieces, but, uh, you know, as space and time is kind of your forte and your expertise, I want to just expand out, not just from set pieces, but, you know, how can teams or how do teams look at creating space, uh, which is one of the most important things in football, um, in open play? Yeah, you know, I think teams... And, and managers in particular think a lot about this because ultimately um, football is a game of space and a game of, of sort of space ownership. And, and this is one of the things that really differentiates it from, from a lot of other sports. Um, you know, so they'll talk a lot about off ball runs or overlapping runs to try and like pull defenders uh, out of position to create space either for themselves or for a teammate. In, in we actually, I, I wrote a, a paper a couple of years ago with one of my PhD students, Harry Fernandez, who, we, we sort of looked at Barcelona and showed that like, Messi has this uncanny ability to know when to not follow the play. So the, the simple example I give is when I watch my kindergartner play football, you know, the, the, all the kids just sort of chase the ball, right? They all just run for the ball no matter where it is. So it's just like a bunch of, you know, four and five-year-olds running after a ch- chasing a, a football. And when you watch professional football it's it's actually of course it's not quite like that but it's actually not entirely if you actually zoom out you'll see that it's kind of similar right if, if the ball's a certain area everyone sort of moves it towards the ball it, it, that's just the way it works Messi has this sort of uncanny ability to know when not to do that and so he will actually we, we did this really nice study sort of using the player tracking data showing that he creates like a ton of value and a lot of space and a lot of opportunities for teammates when he chooses like not to move so we always think interesting about like using movement to create space. Like that's that's the way typically people think about it. Making some run to pull a defender wide, or making some uh, some sort of coordinated action with another player, sort of a third man run to, to sort of open up a, a passing lane. It, 
in this case, like it, it was really interesting because it sort of allowed us to think, hey, players can actually also, if everyone else is moving relative to the rest of the your team or, or the opposition, you're you're moving even if you're standing still because relative to them, right? So it was actually a really interesting thing that I think this is something that that I think clubs and, and coaches could think more about is, is, hey, how do we, we don't necessarily just need to think about using like active runs to create space. We can also think about as the play evolves, we can sort of have sort of tactical shifts as, as a player maybe stays in one spot so that he goes from being maybe, let's say, right up against the center backs. You know, you might have striking sort of right as the center back as the play pushes forward. All of a sudden he's like sitting deeper back if he's, if he's standing still, that is, and sort of potentially, you know, sitting in more open space and sort of creating that opportunity. So it can be sort of thinking both about runs as well as about what I would call like anti-runs, which is thinking about, hey, when, when the play is moving, how do I, if I don't follow the play, what, what, what happens then? And obviously this is, you know, quantifiable now because of tracking data in football, you know, so how, how do you quantify or use metrics to measure, you know, anti-runs and things like that? Yeah, so so the great thing is that we can use this tracking data to sort of understand a player's ownership of space. And, and there's lots of ways to sort of measure that, but maybe the simplest way to think about it is that one of the easiest ways to sort of measure space is to say, if I dropped a football on a very particular location, which player would be the first one to get there? That's maybe the simplest version of, of space control. And so you can imagine that you have this like image over the whole pitch, which says for every location on the pitch, who would be the first player to get there, given what we see right now? And that's kind of like a really crude notion of, of space ownership. And so fundamentally what that means is that if you have a teammate that were to play, let's say, a through ball to that spot or, or play a pass to that location, you know, you would be the first one to get on it and you would potentially you know, be able to receive the ball. So that that those types of techniques are actually really straightforward and have become sort of a staple of sports analytics at this point. So what metrics do you look at or look for when you're trying to evaluate Know, creating uh, space. I know. I think I read one of your old papers where you talked about EPV and, and PV. Uh, with uh, you mentioned Javier Fernandez of, of um, Barcelona. Um, you know, is that what you look for? Yeah, I, the way I tend to think about um, player valuation across sports. This is true in baseball. It's true in basketball. True in hockey. True in true in football. Is to understand what the current expected value of a play is. And then from there, understand what individuals, the individual players are doing to increase or decrease that, right? So, so like a very simple example, if you take, if you take, you know, a team's about to have a corner, for example, let's say, just to make up some numbers here, let's say on average, you, corners are scored one and a half percent of the time. So that means, you know, you would expect if you did this 200 times, 200 of these corners, you're going to score three times, right? So one and a half percent. If the player that's that's taking the corner, the minute it leaves his boot, and we see, hey, this is a great delivery. There's the nice in-swing delivery. It's like perfectly placed because now we know the context of of where the where he kicked that ball. We actually think because it's such a perfect delivery that now the probability of scoring has jumped from one and a half to let's say two point two percent chance of scoring. So now we can say, hey, this this player who took the corner increase the team's chance of scoring from one and a half to 2.2 just because of his really nice delivery. And then you might look in the box and say, okay, then we had a central defender though, who did a great job of marking his man and made sure that the opposition couldn't get ahead on it. And he then therefore reduced it from 2.2, let's say down to something else. So you can sort of understand, okay, given everything we know about what's happening, what is the probability of scoring essentially? And then understand each player's sort of contribution uh, to that, to that value. 
obviously tracking data, you, you can't do this without really tracking data whatsoever. And this has been something that you've been looking at for a while. You know, do you think that clubs are using tracking data well? Yeah, I think to the first point, I think it's not quite true that you can't do without tracking data. There's a lot of of people who have built these types of models with event data, and they have their limitations, certainly, um, because of the limits of on-ball data. You miss all the off-ball runs, you miss all the space creation, et cetera. Um, But there's multiple frameworks built on event data. And by event data, I mean, you know, Opta or StatsBomb or Scout or Instat data, which is capturing, you know, every touch on the ball, every pass, every aerial, every duel, every tackle, et cetera. Um, so there are multiple frameworks, that, um, sort of possession value model frameworks on event data. But in terms of once you go to tracking data, you first off, you capture a lot more information. You capture all that off-ball information, but also the level of technical sophistication required to, to extract that kind of information from tracking data. There's literally not a football club in the world that has the ability to do that to its full extent. Even, even the biggest analytics groups in um, in, in football, if you look at like Liverpool or Arsenal or something, they, they even there, you know, they, they um, to, to, to actually fully dive into the raw tracking data and extract sort of the full nuance of all these off-ball actions, it's still um, no, no club is there. Do you think any club will get there soon or is it just too big well, to do that? It's it's maybe worth looking at North American sports, which are farther along in terms of their analytics investment. So in the NBA, for example, the average analytics team is about, you know, four or five people in, in baseball, it's probably eight or 10. And even in those cases, so, you know, when, when, when Doug Fearing and I founded Zealous Analytics a few years back, the whole premise is that teams, even with, even with five people on staff, 10 people on staff, don't have the bandwidth and capacity to deal with these, the raw tracking data and, and do the sort of full-fledged player evaluation that you would want to do with this type of data. And so Zealous's whole model is founded on this idea of, you know, teams, because there's always demands on their time from you know pre-game reporting, post-game reporting, ad hoc requests, et cetera, even the really big groups in, in baseball that have 10, 15 people don't necessarily have the right combinations of staff to sort of deal with this tracking data and do it in, in the proper way. So for example, like when we, when we think about building out these types of models in, in basketball, which is where we're going right now, our estimation of the amount of work is 30 person years. So, and these are, these are, you know, highly trained PhDs in stats and machine learning. So we're talking what, what football club has can devote 30 person years to a, you know, a a statistical modeling task. And the answer is obviously none. When you say 30 person years, you mean like 30 years of experience working in this like field? Yeah, I I, I mean that it would take me 30 years or it would take 30 clones of me to do it in one year. Ah, okay. Um, In terms of volume of work, right? It would take 30 work years. So let's say we had 10 people, it would take three years. Wow. And Zealous, I I know that one of your like core areas of expertise is machine learning, as you said. So how does machine learning kind of fit into all this? And maybe just for people who don't know what machine learning is, can you kind of explain what that is in layman's terms? Yeah. So so machine learning is, is a, a core piece of what we do. And maybe the best way to think about machine learning is using data to try and predict or understand some outcome. So it may, maybe to tie it into the example we saw before, we, you could talk about machine learning as being sort of the, the, the widget that takes all the tracking data and predicts the probability of scoring. So if you wanted to say, what's the probability right now, given what we're seeing on the pitch, you know, let's say, you know, uh, Neymar just played a through ball to Messi. What now is the probability of, of PSG scoring, right? And the, the widget which takes all the data and outputs the probability of scoring, that's essentially machine learning. 
And so from there, how do you create something uh, like an actionable insight from there that you can use in a practical setting? Yeah, that's that's actually where we're really differentiated is building out models which are both extremely predictive and, and have super high fidelity, but also are interpretable and allow you to actually um, understand the why and the how. I think it's relatively easy to say, you know, Messi's a very, really good player. It's a much harder thing to say, here's exactly why he's good and the exact things that he does that, that create that value. So you know, maybe maybe for, for a layperson, maybe a simple way to think about it is you have some sort of black box. There's, there's two ways to think about this. One is that you have this black box where you, you sort of throw in all the tracking data and then out on the other end pops up something which says, hey, Messi's good and this other player's really bad, right? Mm-hmm. What we do is much different where we say, hey, we have all this tracking data. We're going to really sort of massage and decompose it in a way where, where when it comes out, it doesn't just say Messi's good. It says... Messi's good in these 30 characteristics and maybe okay in these four characteristics and bad in this two, these two characteristics. And this other player is, you know, is, is, is good or bad at different things. And, and the key thing there is that that then allows you to say, do things like say, this player is actually really good, but is playing in the wrong context. You know, he's playing in a high possession style um, game, but he's really bad with his feet. He's really good with his head. He'd be much better playing for a club like Barnsley, for example. Something I found interesting in in an article um, that was about Zealous recently was talking about how kind of you're open with the teams that you work with about all of this. And it it seems like you really believe in transparency. Uh, Can you talk about why you feel like that's important? Yeah, Zealous is is a very different business model. And that's the core piece of it, why we're so transparent. We are not out there selling to every team. We have a very small, exclusive set of partners and they are partnered with us long-term. They essentially hold exclusivity with us in, in perpetuity. And for us, that means that we can think of ourselves in some sense as a, an extension of their internal analytics group. So if you think about our, our baseball partners, for example, or our basketball partners, you know, they might have 10 analysts in-house. And we think of ourselves as sort of being like an, an appendage to their internal group. And as a result, we because of this long-term partnership, we want our teams to be able to um, leverage our information as, as much as possible and understand it as much as possible. So that's why we, we, we build these things out in a way which give, give our partner teams like full transparency and insights into exactly what goes into all of our evaluations so that they then can make the best possible decisions. Now, we were just talking about machine learning a, a moment ago. You know, how, uh, how commonly is that used you know, within the data analytics field, um, you know, specifically in football, like are other teams uh, using this right now? I, I think teams are certainly have people on staff that that are that have those skills. Um, but for the most part, I think if you look at what teams are actively using for that, are, that's actually impacting decision making. It's relatively simple things, right? It's it's looking at a striker saying how many goals did he have, how how much, how many expected goals. Maybe they're getting a little farther and talking about expected assist, which is to say, you know, of the passes you make, how many do we expect would be assists based on the quality of the pass and all that kind of stuff. They're kind of doing simple count metrics. Is I think there's there may be one or two clubs in the world, but generally not many who are, who are using machine learning. And not surprisingly, when you think about the level of complexity it takes, the the level of technical skill it requires to sort of build those types of models, and then ultimately the challenge with with interpreting and integrating into a decision making process. It's much easier for a sporting director to understand, hey, this player got me 10 goals, or maybe a step further, this, this player had you know eight and a half expected goals in the season and how that's going to translate to, to my team, than it is to say, you know, this player um, increases the probability of scoring by 3% when he touches the ball on the right flank. Like, how, how do you act on that? 
right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking <laughs> right now, right? Like, um, you know, because I, I was reading this paper and, you know, they were talking about like automated video assistant coaches and like AI prescriptive models. And, you know, I, to me, like, as it, it sounds fantastic, but, you know, I wonder like how, you know, how actionable is, is all of this? Um, yeah, there's, there's a big gap between academic um, papers that are out there and the actual things that are useful for a club. You know, as I talked about earlier, I think, you know, I, I think the perfect post-game report in some regards is, is, a, is a blank sheet of paper with one number on it. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm being a bit facetious here, but um, in contrast, the, the things that are out there in academia are really complex models with really a, a, would be a significant stretch to, to implement and execute on within a club. So this is one of the challenges called finds find is to say, hey, we want to we want to use data and we want to improve our decision making. Well, it's like a huge world out there of analysts with drastically different skill sets, different data providers, tracking data, event data. How do you actually decide what are the things that are going to ultimately bring the club more wins and how do we narrow it down? And I think for the most part, that's where clubs fail is they bring these people in and have no idea what to listen to and what not to listen to and how to direct that focus and attention. And ultimately, in the end, it, it, gets, it get, ends up getting ignored completely. So you have a really interesting um, role in that not only are you the co-founder of Zealous, but you're also a, a co-owner, board member, and executive vice president of Redbird, which is a really interesting company. And you know, back in March, Redbird reportedly purchased an 11% stake in Liverpool's owners, Fenway Sports Group, you know, for um, a little over 500 million pounds. Um, and Redbird also owns the majority share of Toulouse, um, which is a club in France and a prominent cricket team that I believe we've already mentioned. Um, you know, so since you you work at both companies, can, what is the relationship between Zealous and Redbird? Yeah, so you know, Redbird is is a um, private equity fund based in New York. A great group of guys. Um, and maybe the simplest way to think about it is they are. Um, one of our shareholders at, at Zealous and one of our um, partners at Zealous, but then also sort of work hand in hand um, in some sort of, as you say, these, these various sporting projects. So um, we run Toulouse with them, have an investment in the Rajasthan Royals. So, you know, th- maybe, you know, they, they provide a lot of great business uh, context for us and are sort of really our partners in, in, in multiple of these different projects. Are, are they the main investors in Zealous? I mean, I know Zealous is like a, quite a big company um, in, in its own right. And yeah, I think you're like one of the biggest uh, data companies now at this point. Um, yeah, we've, we've grown relatively quickly. You know, we're not a data collection company. So we're really just a, um, we're really like an insights company um, mm-hmm. working across sports. And yes, Redbird is really our, our, our primary financial partner. So I mentioned that, Redbird is, you know, invested 11% in Liverpool. Do you interact or, um, you know, work with Liverpool's data team at all? I mean, we on TGG, we've uh, talked about how they're one of the leaders in this area. Yeah, the, 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 the simple answer is no. Um, Redbird, uh, Redbird's investment in, in Liverpool is actually totally separate from their involvement with uh, zealous and Toulouse. So as a, as a result, you know, of course, they, they all think of it as under one umbrella, but my main focus is Zealous and Toulouse, and I um, don't have any direct involvement with Liverpool. Okay. Um, and so in regards to Toulouse, you know, what are your ambitions with that project? And, you know, what are the advantages that you get 
partnering with a lot of other teams and a lot of other sports um, as well. Yeah, I think, the, you know, the, we could talk a lot about the data and how we can use that to make player recruitment decisions. But a lot of it's just about using the experience that we have in, in other sports and other businesses to um, ultimately make better decisions at the club level. And that can be both on the business side, making decisions around marketing and stadium and, and et cetera, but, but also around players, right, around around the, the football side of an organization, understanding where to invest and where not to invest, where, what, what things you can sort of spend your time and attention and money on that are actually going to increase the team's um, chances of winning. That, that's fundamentally it. And, you know, we, we took over Toulouse a little over a year ago and French football as a whole has had a, a lot of headwinds over the last year. Obviously there's been challenges with the media deal and that's led to sort of a lot of um, financial uncertainty for a lot of these clubs and including Toulouse, but you know, we're actually really happy with where we are. We have a great team on the ground and Damien Camoli and Olivier Jobert that are sort of guiding the ship. And um, we've been, we've been really happy with, with where that's at. Reading between the lines. I, I take it that, you're ta- you're saying that a lot of the you know changes or improvements at Toulouse is is not just you know data and how it's used in performance, but as you kind of mentioned before, in terms of how an organization is structured and run, and uh, kind of that model, and not just like you know using it in terms of you know set pieces like we were talking about before. Yeah, maybe the best um, framing I can give is that if you look around at most clubs, they are oftentimes working on on really good things. So they might say, okay, we're working on this sports science project and we're working on this academy project. And we, you know, we're working on player recruitment. We're trying to find a, a, a right back who's super speedy and super fast. And they have all these different things, good things that they're working on. Um, where they're trying to sort of uh, optimize towards different things. So they're trying to say, okay, we want to find a, a new director of PR who's really well connected into the media and the local community. We're working on, you know, whatever it might be. But uh, the problem is that when you sort of think about the, the executive leadership, it's really hard to know of all these different tasks with all their different objectives, how to think about op- or prioritizing different projects and, and ultimately different where to invest your money and your time and your and your attention, right? And so one of the biggest things that, that clubs can do is to, is to sort of come to a common term or common unit of, of, of measure of, of or objective. And so we, you know, we talked about this earlier, but ultimately it's got to be wins, right? And wins and, and, and goal differential is what I would sort of break it down to. But if you're thinking about wins or places in the table, then you can start to sort of frame every question. Like if the question is, okay, do we hire a nutritionist? Or do we hire another physio, you know, and then you can answer, you know, the, the nutritionist will, you know, make sure guys are better fueled before matches and, but the physio will, you know, do better rehab. Then you can actually break it down and say, well, okay, how many more guys are going to be able to process on a rehab? How much quicker do they get back on the pitch? You know, what's the impact there? Do we think on, you know, give me a, even just a back of the envelope calculation on how that impacts, you know, what would be the impact on, on, on wins, let's say, or, or, or place in the table, because ultimately it's like, we could take that dollar and we could spend it on another player. So we need to sort of be able to, to, to weigh, you know, okay, we can, we can spend a little bit more on another striker or we can spend it on, you know, changing up the, 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 the food in the, in the cafeteria, right? How do you, how do you make those decisions? And so a lot of it is just sort of thinking through all of that holistically in a way which allows you to sort of properly prioritize these different investments. And when I say investments, again, it's not just money, it's also sort of time, attention, and resources more broadly. 
So what are those conversations like with you and Toulouse? How do you fit into to the running of the club there? Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I, we have great people on the ground there that, that do all the heavy lifting and, and all the day-to-day. So really my role is just sort of strategic guidance and, and um, helping think through higher level questions, you know, like what we just talked about. Okay. Um, you know, I want to kind of zoom out um, a bit you know, so what, what is kind of the overarching, you know, goal in, uh, from the, on your football side of things for zealous and, you know, we can even say Redbird. you know, I know that you guys are connected with AZ Alkmaar as well. Um, you know, so what's the overarching kind of vision? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, I'll separate out zealous here because zealous is sort of like a multi-sport. Hmm. So, so, so it sort of focuses is a little bit different, but on, at least on the football side, if we look at Toulouse, I think we think that, by taking Toulouse, and ultimately we, we do have sort of multi-club ambitions by by bringing a professionalizing the, the management that we're going to lead to sort of significant benefits. Essentially, taking what we've seen, how we've seen baseball and basketball and American football evolve over the last twenty years, and taking those learnings to football and, and European football in particular, that we're going to be able to build a club which which creates you know significant advantage and significant um allow us to sort of ultimately significantly outperform um our budget ultimately ultimately and so there's aspirations to have multiple clubs in in multiple countries yeah you know that's it, it's sort of a, a long-term goal and not something that that we'd ever want to um rush but like we're we're quite opportunistic when it comes to that we've realized that that if you do this poorly can end up quite it, it's not necessarily a good thing to have multiple clubs i think you can easily put yourself in a position where you're running into like competitive problems right like um you know someone who probably wasn't thinking would go and say oh let's buy two champions league clubs and then quickly realize that you can't do that uefa wouldn't let you do that but there's also some really nice benefits if when if you do it properly to, to all the clubs and it actually improves all the clubs it allows you to better create better talent pathways for your players create better opportunities for your coaches. You know, you just need to look at Red Bull to see how that works, right? Um, and really nice coaching pathways through their system so that they end up in a position where, hey, they're, they're, they're not out like searching for external coaches all the time. They have a really nice training and development pathway for their coaches. And it's ultimately their multi-club system that allows them to do that. So if we look kind of big picture, you know, what are the big trends uh, that you're seeing in the future of uh, football data um, in the next, you know, one to three or one to five years. Yeah. So one one thing that's happening really rapidly is teams are hiring analysts. So they're they're either because they have a clear strategy of how they want to implement it, or because like you know it's just the way things are going, and we feel like we need a, a data guy on staff, right? And this this the same thing happened in basketball sort of ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago. Um, happened in baseball twenty years ago. So you know this is this is not surprising at all. And that's probably the main trend we'll see is, is, is most teams um, having someone in-house who can understand and interpret data and, and ultimately put the clubs in a place where, um, should they want to use that data, can help them sort of better understand tactics and, and player evaluation, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, just personally, what are the big questions that you're exploring or trying to answer um, at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. I, my focus tends to be, um, aligned in two ways. One is, to, is the first is the, on the technical side. How do we ultimately get the best possible valuation on on athletes and ultimately on on winning? So athletes, tactics, etc. Um, and 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 thinking a lot about firstly, how, you know, how do we how do we fuse data with the 
sort of, you know, we talk about machine learning or the statistical models that sit on top that ultimately sort of turn that data into actionable intelligence and value. And how do we, how do we combine that with other sources of information like Intel and, and um, contract information, financial information, um, scouting information, and to ultimately get the best possible valuation of, of, of players across sports. And then the second thing I think a lot about is how do we, how do we build an organization that makes or, or, or a football club that makes consistently high quality, good process driven decisions and decisions which are going to ultimately lead to success. Like when you think about making decisions, I don't think, I don't think a good organization means you're, you're always making the perfect decision. And what I think it is, is that, you know, you're always sort of flipping a coin on, on these decisions, say we're going to do heads or tails. And you're ultimately just trying to bias that coin a little bit, just make slightly better decisions every time. And if you do that repeatedly, those slightly better decisions add up into, you know, long-term sustainable advantage. Well, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.